The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. I want you to hear that word steadfast. Steadfast means it is consistent. It is enduring. The word steadfast, in fact, throughout the scripture, uh, sometimes translated steadfast, sometimes translated as enduring, sometimes translated as ever, never ending or everlasting. And yet that, that type of love is not something that God must feel for you when you've earned it. Um, it's something that he has because he is love. And so this is what we bring to mind, and in this we have hope. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, it is a great opportunity, since we sang that song, to, you know, just to, to every now and then, to, to publicly give testimony of God's faithfulness. And, and I love uh, when, when we get a chance to do that. And, and in fact, you know, we go in cycles here at the Word Church, mainly not because of anything that is intended, but sometimes when we have testimonies one week, that inspires other people to give their testimony. So I would like to encourage you, not tonight, but get ready, because I would like to encourage you uh, uh, to, to be prepared, you know, to give God some glory in a public way. Uh, we certainly encourage that here, you know, and, and um, if you have, if you want to give a testimony of what God's done in your life, you let us know. And we'll make room for that because we really do believe that that's important. I got a testimony because, uh, as I said, you know, I've had nine good years, nine really good years. And uh, the scripture actually says that when you find a godly wife, that something about a godly wife is that the husband's supposed to talk well about her at the gates. But I went to the border of Lloydminster and nobody was there. <laughs> so I'm here telling you that I have found a godly wife. God found her for me, which was really cool. I, I certainly didn't find her. He worked that out, and if you know our story, it's kind of funny how he did that. Uh, but, you know, the Bible says that a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised, and, and uh, I, I, I'm going to take an opportunity to praise my wife. That she has been the continual um, source and proof that God loves me. Uh, she's proof of a good God to me. Because uh, she is steadfast like the Lord is steadfast. She is uh, the one who, you know, if I'm down, she'll pick me up. If I need prayer, she'll pray. If, uh, she's the one person after a service I can always count on to, to, to tell me what she got out of the message. I, I'm amazed. If I knew somebody as well as she knows me, I don't know if I'd be able to receive so well from them on a Sunday morning. But she sure does. She gets in the car and says, this is what I got out of this service. And, and I give her high honor and respect for that because... She's able to say, that's my husband, but I'm also able to receive from God when that guy talks. And that's an amazing thing. And, and uh, I've certainly received from God when she speaks. And uh, even though sometimes it's annoying when your wife preaches your own stuff back to you when you don't want to hear it. <laughs> it's annoying in the best way. Um, and God has been good to me through my wife. So thank God for Tia. I'm thankful for Tia. And I thank God that it's been a fun nine years, but I'm pretty pumped about the next nine and next ten. So we're entering our tenth year together, and I know it's going to be good. And we get to just be with you guys through those. It's been wonderful to journey with you. So thank God for Tia. Amen. I'm thankful for Tia. And thankful that God gave her to me. You know, the Proverbs 31 also says that her children will rise up and call her blessed. But Moses really dropped the ball. Um, <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I should have warned him. All right. He could say something nice on Mother's Day. This is my time. I'd love for you guys to turn to the book of Psalms. 
we started a series last Wednesday. Uh, typically, Wednesday nights, we go through a book of the Bible verse by verse, but every now and then, uh, we will tackle a specific uh, 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 subject in the Scripture. And uh, what we've been bringing out, and we started last week and we'll continue this week, is the idea of remembering, uh, of godly memory, of, of memory as a discipline. I, I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, um, but I'd like you to think about what that might mean to, to have memory as a discipline in your life. That, that so often, I know I've said this many times in different ways, but so often we treat our thoughts, our emotions, what we choose to dwell on in our mind, we, we treat that as something we can't control. It's merely a, a, a byproduct of our circumstances. It's a byproduct of our moods. It's a byproduct of whether or not we had coffee in the morning. Uh, this should not be so. You, it, it shouldn't be accidental uh, where your mind takes you throughout the, the day because your mind shouldn't necessarily take you somewhere. You should take your mind somewhere. Your mind is a powerful tool. I'm not one of those guys that tells you to check your brain at the door because that would be just as dumb as telling you to check your body at the door. I think you need to have your mind. Your mind was given to you by God. And one of the things that God said is, love me with your mind. Love me with your mind. Love me with your strength. Love me with your soul, your spirit. So he's not just saying, you know, the only part of you that really can do any good is your spirit. No, of course not. See, God uses my body. If not for my body, how could I preach the gospel? If not for my body, how could I give to the poor? If not for my body, how could I dance before the Lord? How could I sing? I need my body. So I need my brain to serve the Lord as well. But we've said this plenty of times before. Your mind, your soul, and your, your, your body, they are wonderful, wonderful servants of God. But they're not good masters. And so you learn to let the Spirit be the master and the rest of you to be the servant of God. And God will use that in a mighty way. Thank God for people that aren't afraid to use their brains for Jesus. <laughs> aren't afraid. And know that God's not afraid of your brain. God wants you to think. You okay with that? Yeah. Oh, great. He's going to do math problems. No, God wants you to think. God wants you to use your head. Uh, but, you know, the Bible talks about a renewed mind. Your mind is a product of what you've put in it. That's the whole point of education. You'll get out of it what you put into it. So your mind will give you what you've trained it to give you. It, it will feed back to you what you've placed in it. And so the Bible tells us that one of the ways we're going to avoid being conformed to the world, one of the ways we're going to avoid looking like everybody else in the world is to actually be transformed into the image of Christ by the renewing of our mind. So, you know, you notice the, 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 the switch in those two words. On one hand, you can be conformed, and conforming is a natural process. You, you tend to adapt to whatever environment you're in, but that's not always a good thing. If you grew up in Nazi Germany, it would not be a good thing to conform to that ideology. It would be easy to conform to it if you're surrounded by it, but it's not a good thing. We may not live in Nazi Germany, but we also don't live in a perfect culture. We live in a culture that's got very very big flaws in it. It's got broken things because of its separation from God. And so to be conformed to this world, no matter what part of the world you're in or what age you're in, is a, is a problem. But being conformed is a natural process. Being transformed is a supernatural process. And it's, it's, it's a, a metamorphosis of sorts. In fact, the word transformed in the original Greek 
is the word we get metamorphosis from. So he says to be metamorphosized, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the Bible tells you that one of the ways you do that is by washing your mind with the water of the word. Is by letting God tell you how things are. Who would know better than the God of the universe? Right? So sometimes it's, it seems contrary to our patterns. I want you to know that there is no pattern in your life, there's no habit in your life, there's no cycle in your life that the power of God can't break. You have to believe that on some level. You have to believe that on every level. You, you have to, before you can see breakthrough, you got to believe that breakthrough is possible and you got to believe that breakthrough is God's will. If you can believe those things, the rest will come. But the first thing you've got to settle is, I am not a slave to the patterns and cycles and habits I've, let my, I, I've, you know, I've had on my life for all these years. And they may be on your life through no fault of your own. May have been something done to you. May have been done, you know, things passed on, the way you were raised, whatever. I'm not saying it's your fault, but I am saying it is in It is in God's power to break that. So you decide, I don't have to live like this anymore. I've noticed the patterns in my life. I've said, I've used this analogy before, but many of you notice life seems pretty good until storms come. Whenever it rains, the water runs to the same spots. And you go, oh, these are some issues in my life. When things are going well, I I, I can kind of make it look like I'm functioning, but when stuff comes, I notice the same things pop up. And, and maybe someone told you that's just your lot in life, but I, I want to tell you that there's hope in Jesus Christ, that, that there's something beyond the cycle you're in right now. And, and there's no judgment or condemnation for where you are. But I want you to know you don't have to stay there. Never be ashamed of it, but you don't have to stay there. I want to read you something from the book of Psalms. Last week, we talked about uh, that, you know, remembering God when things get good. We talked about the Israelites coming out of the wilderness, and God said, when, you know, you're in a period right now where you have no choice but to trust me. There's no water. I brought you to a place where there was no water, so water had to come from a rock. I brought you to a place where there was no food, so food had to fall from the sky. I mean, you, if food is falling from the sky and water is coming out of a rock, you have no choice but to believe God's doing this. But he said, I'm going to bring you into a land that has lots of harvest. It has lots of animals. It has lots of water. It has springs. It has vineyards. It has crops. It has livestock. And he says, when you're in that land... Be careful, and in fact, one of the verses says, take care of your own soul, that you don't forget God. Because it's still the same God that made manna come from the sky is the same God that's causing your vineyards to grow. But it's harder, it's harder for someone to remember that God's doing this when it just seems like, no, I'm doing this. I planted seed and it grew. And, 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 and I fed the cows and they give milk. And, and, and you're thinking, this is me doing this. And God says, no, it is still my hand of provision. So it's important that when you get well fed and satisfied, that you don't become puffed up and proud, he says. So guard your soul, he says, and remember the Lord your God. Well, tonight I want to talk about the other side of that. I want to, I want to talk to you a little bit about how to... Massage the knots out of your soul when you're in those tight places, when you're in those rough places, when you're in those low places. What is it that you're choosing to remember? And I want to use that phrase deliberately. What are you choosing to remember? 
What are you bringing to your mind? What are you choosing to think about? What are you meditating on? Now, let's introduce the word meditate. Maybe your idea of meditation comes from the world. And your idea of meditation is a New Age, Eastern sort of thing. I want you to know that there is a Bible word of meditate, and it's, it's different. You see, the world's way of meditating is to completely clear your mind, right? Clear your mind. It's cluttered. Clear it. The, the Bible idea of meditate was not stolen from another culture. It was originated by God. In fact, the Hebrew word for meditate means to... It was like the word they used for chewing on the cud. It was to mutter to yourself, to keep something in your mouth. So God said to Joshua, don't let my word leave your mouth. Always keep it in your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Mutter it to yourself. Speak it to yourself. And then you'll have success. And then you'll make your way prosperous. So this is what God told Joshua. You know, you have stories of David saying, I meditate on you in, my, in the night watch. I, I'm thinking about this. I'm choosing to dwell on this. And while the world's idea of meditation is to empty your mind, the Bible idea of meditation is to fill it with the right things. In fact, to fill it with the word of God. Not to empty it, but to fill it, to replace what shouldn't be there with what should be there. This is, this is a discipline. This is something you can do. You are not thrown around by circumstance. You're not thrown around by what people have done to you. You're not thrown around by your upbringing. You're not thrown around by what you saw on TV. You are not a slave to uncontrollable thoughts and emotions. You can take control in the power of Jesus. I believe this wholeheartedly. If I didn't believe this, I don't think there'd be any point preaching. I believe this not because uh, somebody just said it and I thought that sounded good. I believe it, number one, because the Bible tells us this. And number two, because I've lived it out. I know what it's like to, to battle these thoughts. I know what it's like to battle thoughts of suicide. I know what it's like to battle thoughts of depression and, and to battle thoughts of unworthiness and to, and to think that you're not, you're not doing anything worthy of, of, of the call that God put on your life. I know what it's like to be in those places, to be lied to, to be deceived, and I know what it took to get out of it. It's the same thing it's going to take for you. It's not a new solution. It's not anything that Oprah came up with. It is it's prehistoric. It is, it is what God has said from the beginning. Yeah. All right, so in, in the book of Psalms, and I want you to turn with me to a, a, what may be a familiar um, chapter to you because I, I know we've quoted from it before. In the book of Psalms, and we're going we're gonna to go to uh, chapter 74. Oh, sorry, 74. 42, Psalm 42, forgive me. 74 is good, too. You can look that up. You have permission to read that. But let's go to Psalm 42. I believe we talked about this chapter back when we were talking about hope. But I'd like to bring it up again. You know, when we, we, we did a whole few weeks on hope, we brought up the point that in the Bible, hope is something that produces endurance in your life. If you want to know why some people quit and some people never quit, 
you might chalk it up to willpower, but I don't think that's the case. I think when it comes to the things of God, willpower is not enough. Right? The, even the strong will, will, will buckle under the pressure without the help of God. So it's not willpower, it's, it's really hope that keeps you to en- enduring. In fact, the Bible says, Paul said to the Thessalonian church, he said, I've, I've, I've been really thankful to see your work of faith, in other words, the action that came from your faith, your labor of love, so the labor that came from your love, and your steadfastness of hope. So the steadfastness, the endurance that came from you having hope. Faith will produce action in your life. Love will cause you to do things you normally wouldn't do for people. And hope will cause you to keep going when everybody else quits. And hope is not accidental. It's not uh, some people are hopeful and some people aren't. It's not a, a mysterious thing that just descends on you. You can grab on to hope. You can choose to dwell in hope. You can choose to stir up hope. Here's what it says in Psalm 42. This is a, a moscow, and a moscow means it's a song to be taught. It's a teaching song of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were descendants of Korah that we find in the, in the uh, uh, journey out of Egypt. Um, but these guys show up mainly, and they really they make their first big appearance um, it, when David's king, and later on at the dedication of the temple, they... They're the band, the Sons of Korah. They get to sing a special song. They're pretty, uh, they're pretty cool. They, get, they, they write their own songs, and they're, they're their own little group. And they, they've written this song, but it doesn't sound like it's a group of people that wrote this song. It sounds like it's one person that wrote this song. It's written in the first person. So I, I think one guy wrote this. Some people, guys like Matthew Henry, have, have posited that maybe even David himself wrote this. Um, because it, 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 some of the places that are named uh, when it talks about where they ran to, to find God were some of the places he ran when his son rebelled against him. But all we know is what the Bible tells us, Psalm of the Sons of, of Korah. And here's what it says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Now, how many of you grew up with the song, As the Deer? All right, so you know that song, has the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. I grew up with that song too. I I didn't know that that was originally a blues song. I thought it was a happy song. Oh, Lord, my soul longs after you. I didn't realize until I read this chapter that he wasn't saying, I just love you, Lord. I just love you. I just pant for you. No, this is a guy who says, God, where have you been? It's been a long time. Seriously, God, where have you been? I'm a dying man. I feel like I'm dying of thirst without you. Why are you not around? Quick poll. Do you think God left? you think God took a vacation? you think God forsook his people? No, but there are plenty of times where we, even though God did not forsake us, you feel like, where's God? People say, where's God? I don't want you to know God has never and will never forsake you. He won't. He won't do it. Jesus promised you that. I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. But it is a very real emotion to say, God, where are you? I really don't feel you like I felt you two months ago. I I, I don't feel closeness to you like I felt last week. So God, where are you now? He says, I'm like a deer that's... Dying of thirst. 
panting for the water brooks. I'm panting for you. He says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. And they say to me all day long, where's your God? It seems to me that the enemy always knows how to find people that are going to ask dumb questions when you're going through a rough time. He knew how to find people to show up at the cross and mock Jesus. He knew how to find two good buddies to go and bug Job when he's going through it. You know, as if Job didn't go through enough, two guys showed up and tried to figure out why it was his fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's figure out what you did wrong, Job. Uh, let's go down the list. Some people said, uh, isn't it interesting that when the devil stole everything from Job, Satan stole everything from Job, he left his wife. <laughs> who was the one who said, why don't you just curse God and die, you know? That's all we're going to say about that. <laughs> so somehow these folks know how to show up at the right time. They ask, where's your God now? He says, my two tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where's your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. So in this case, his memory is not a happy thing. His memory is not serving him well. His memory is a bitter thing. Because what he's remembering is I remember what it used to be like. In fact, he says this. He says, I used to go along with the throng. I used to lead them in the procession. I was the worship leader. I remember what it felt like to be at the front. He said, I, I used to lead them in the procession of the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. I remember that. He says, and my soul pours out within me. It's interesting. I, I, I think that I think in your conversation with God, everything's fair game. God sees all, God knows all. So I don't believe that you have to hide anything or any emotion from God. I believe you should feel free to pour it out. I think the only, only caveat I put to, the only rule I put on that is just stick around long enough to hear what he has to say. Don't leave the conversation until you've heard from God. Say whatever you need to say, but stick around. Because God is not silent. He's not nervous. He's not intimidated. He's not delicate, but he's not silent either. Sometimes we need to not immediately jump on some things that people say in a time of despair. Speaking of Job, Job said some things out of his own hurt, out of his own feeling of betrayal. And his friends just began to jump on it just immediately just jumped on him. And he said something, I, I'm, I'm trying to quote it exactly, but he said something along the lines of, why are you condemning me here for what I just said? He said, uh, he said aren't, uh, for, a man, for a man in despair whose words are to the wind. And what he's saying is, I, I, I'm not thinking straight right now, guys. So I'm in such despair, my words are just for the wind, and maybe you guys should just lay off for a second. Now, I'm the first one to tell you, if you don't have something good to say, shut your mouth for a bit, you know? If you can't speak the word of the Lord, don't speak right away, okay? But I also am, am one to understand that sometimes people say things in a time of despair when they've lost hope that I'm not going to hold against them. I'm just going to call it words for the wind. We're going to let that go, and, and we're going to try to get you back to a place where you are saying what God says and where you know that, you're, that God loves you and hasn't forsaken you. Sometimes we just need to lay off and not be so hard on people. 
and realize that right now the most important thing is where's their heart at? And my most important thing is not theologically correcting them, but letting God use me as an instrument in their life. Because right now they're speaking out of hurt. They're speaking out of a feeling of betrayal and abandonment that, that needs to be addressed. And the first thing that needs to be addressed is not that they're doctrinally wrong. The first thing that needs to be addressed is that they need God. They need his hope. They need his life. So sometimes you just got to treat some people's words like they're words to the wind. And, and we're going to give you a pass on that. I have to give King David a pass when he says, Oh, I wish I could bash their babies' heads against the rocks. I don't think that's a theologically correct statement. You guys think that's okay? No. no. I mean, we don't write praise and worship songs about that. It's not appropriate. But we go, David was going through some stuff. So let's, let's just read that and then move on to where he came out of it. So this psalmist here is saying some things that might not be true. God, why'd you leave me? But you know the psalmists say things like, oh Lord, oh God, oh God, why have you forsaken me? And somehow, even Jesus quoted it on the cross. Even though God hadn't forsaken Jesus, he wasn't forsaken. Nor was the psalmist forsaken. But sometimes you feel forsaken. He says this, he says, why are you in despair, O oh my soul? What is despair? Despair is a lack of hope. It's where you have no hope. It's you're empty. You're short of spirit. You... You're low in spirit. In fact, uh, the, the literal Hebrew says, why are you bowed down low, O my soul? Why are you so low? He says, why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I will again praise him. So he's preaching to himself, right? Get a good mirror, preach to yourself. He says, hope, hope in God, for I will again praise him for the help of his presence. Oh my God. Now he's doing the right thing. He's telling God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, listen to this. It, it really didn't help him too much to remember how he used to feel. Uh, it didn't help him too much to remember how, how things were going so well back in the day because that just kind of made him feel worse about where he was right now. But something that is going to help him is to remember who God is. Right? Because sometimes when you just say, well, I remember when I used to go to church, I had a great time. Maybe that helps you, maybe it doesn't. Sometimes it helps you. Sometimes it says, well, why can't we just, uh, why can't I just get back to that place? But sometimes it just makes you feel more low and worse about where you are. And you're comparing yourself with yourself. So maybe the best thing for you, maybe the best thing for you, in fact, I know this is the best thing for you, is to begin to remember who God is. Now, don't remember who you were. Remember who he is. You know, the Bible says that the unseen things are eternal, but the seen things are temporary. So he says we focus, we don't focus on the temporary things, we focus on eternal things. So everything you're going through, any, any time of your life, any moment in your life, any season in your life, it is temporary, but who God is... And who you are in him is eternal. So it's the eternal things that are going to bring you out of the temporary situations. It's the eternal truths that bring you out of temporary situations. Uh, I don't know if you uh, remember this song back in, the, uh, back in 2000. 
U2 wrote a song called Stuck in a Moment and You Can't Get Out of It. And it was about another rock star who had taken his own life, committed suicide. He was a friend of theirs, and they had written a song that said, you, 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 you got to you, pull yourself together, but now you're stuck in a moment, and you can't get out of it. Their point was, you, this, this depression, this, this uh, low place that you're in seemed like it was everything, but it was just a moment. And when you took your life, you got stuck in that moment, and you can't get out of it. Their point was, every moment's temporary. You could have got out of it. Now, I know I've dealt with people, and I've been in the place where someone might say that to you, and it doesn't seem to help because it feels like it's forever. There's nothing about depression that makes sense. There's nothing about spiritual oppression that makes sense. There's nothing about attacks that are logical. And so, you know, sometimes just logically talking to someone doesn't fix them. But I'll tell you what will bring you out. The eternal things of God. The eternal things of God are always bigger than the temporary things we're going through. And it may not feel temporary, but I assure you, I promise you, I, I can tell you with everything that is in me, they are temporary. Everything is temporary except for him. So focus on eternal things. This is what the psalmist does. I remember you. So I'm going to remember you. He says, I, I'm going to remember you when I was, when I found you in the land of Jordan. I'm going to remember you from the peaks of Hermon. I'm going to remember you from Mount Mizar. And that's kind of a funny thing to say because Mizar is a very small little hill. But it seemed big. Like I said, I don't know if this was written by a random son of Korah, or written by David and gave it to the sons of Korah because David ran away to some of these places when his own son committed rebellion against him and started a civil war. We found God in places that nobody was looking for God. We found God in places where we cried out to him and he was there. And I, I, I want you to just for a minute think about the places in your life where you found God. Now, God is everywhere. Think about the moments in your life, the places in your life, the seasons in your life where you discovered God in a new way. Maybe it was the moment you first believed. Maybe it was when you were first, where you first were introduced to the idea that he was more than you could imagine and that he loved you more than you could know. And Maybe it was when you were just filled with his spirit. Maybe it was when you found out that you fit in a body. Well, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was a, a retreat. Maybe it was a church service. Maybe it was uh, somewhere out in the forest and you just yelled at the sky. I don't know. But I know we all have places like this where it's not Jordan for me. It's not Hermon. It's not Mizar. Those aren't my places, but I have places where I remember encountering God and they're holy places to me. And there are holy seasons in my life. And sometimes you need to go back and say, what did I learn about God then? And one of the most beautiful things about life is sometimes the worst things you've ever gone through are the times you found out the best things about God. Because he delivered you out of the worst things. He saved you from the worst things. You weren't destroyed by the worst things. In a time of great despair, 
You found out he was your healer. You found out he was your sanctifier. You found out he was your redeemer. You found out he was a father to you. There are so many things we find out when we're running away if we'll look to God. And he says, I remember you in these places. I remember when I found you in these places. I remember seeking you. I remember you. And he says this, and verse 7 is just magnificent. He says, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. And all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Think about the immense nature of depression. Now, someone who is truly in that place. Now, I know some people suffer from clinical depression, but some of us, it's maybe not clinical as it's termed by, the, by a psychiatrist, but it's still depression. It's a low place. Whatever, that, whatever the definition is for you, I will tell you, we've all felt this time where it felt like we were underwater and didn't know how to get above water. But now it's been flipped. Instead of the water of oppression, instead of the water of, of lowness, instead of the water of, of depression, what now is rolling over this man who's writing it is the presence of God. And something deep, as he meditates on the deep things of God, those deep things of God are crying out and calling and pulling out the deep things within him. Because every one of us, we might have trouble and we might have despair on the surface, but I know, I know if you're a child of God, and especially a child of God who's bothered to hide the word of God in your heart, I know that in the deep places in you, there are deep truths, there are deep strengths, there is deep life, there is deep power that can only come from God, and God knows how to draw it out of you. Because all your trouble is just like all your good fortune. All of that stuff is surface. But the joy, the peace, the hope, all of the love, all of these fruit of the Spirit, they dwell in a deep place in you. And there are deep truths. Deep truths that are bigger. C.S. Lewis wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He told the story of Jesus through an analogy about a lion who gave up his life to redeem somebody who had sold them into slavery. And the lion was killed. And there's a statement made because the lion doesn't stay dead. And the statement, I won't quote it exactly because I didn't think I was going to quote it, so I didn't write it down. But the statement was something along the lines of what, what brought the lion back to life, there was a deeper magic at work. Now me, I don't believe in magic. But in the story, they're using the word magic to talk about what we know as the spirit realm, what we know as the power of God. That the power and and the spell that kept the lion dead wasn't as strong as the power that raised the lion back to life. And I want you to know that there are deep things within you that God has placed in you that are much bigger than anything that's ever been thrown against you. And the Bible says, greater is he that's within me than he that's in the world. The Bible says that the anointing that abides within you is able to teach you all things. So there is anointing within you. And the psalmist says, there is something deep in me 
that when I meditate on you, there are, there's something deep, those deep places in you, the deep waters of you call out to the deep places in me. And he says, I hear the sound of your waterfalls. Think about the roar of a waterfall. That's now he's in this place where the presence of God is this real to him. Your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. Look at, look at how he flipped it around. From utter despair to saying the Lord will command his loving kindness to me in the daytime. His song will be with me in the night. Then he says a prayer to the God of my life. Now oh, he goes back and he says, I will say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. They say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Charles Spurgeon wrote about this verse. He said, it seems that the psalmist is experiencing the spasms of despair. In other words, sometimes it comes in waves and you think you dealt with it and then it comes back again. And I want you to know just because it comes back again doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Keep doing what you're doing. When you address what's going on and you bring the word of God into it, you bring the power of God into it, and then another wave of despair comes and you go, oops, I guess I failed. I guess I didn't do it. Somehow it's still coming at me. No, don't stop. It's just another wave, and you'll fight it just like you fight, fought the first one. And this is what the psalmist does. He goes back and says, why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. Do you notice he doesn't feel he needs to change his tactic? He doesn't say, well, hope didn't work. Uh, love God? <laughs> uh, hope didn't work. Um, have faith in God? No. He doesn't feel, he doesn't, he doesn't say, I failed, I'm going to give up. No, he just says, let's do this again. Let's try this again. Why are you downcast, soul? Hope in God. There's nothing wrong with repetition. There's nothing wrong with persistence. And I want you to not feel condemned for dealing with the same thing you've already dealt with. Don't feel condemned for it. Don't feel like you did something wrong. You're just dealing with an enemy who has no new tricks. Just keep doing what's working. Well, it's not working because here I am. I'm still in despair. It is working. And the greatest lie that the enemy would tell you is that God's word isn't working in your life. And the only reason he'll tell you that lie is because if you think it's not working, you'll stop. We stop doing things we don't think are working. But I'm telling you it's working. And the psalmist says it here. He says, hope in God. For I will yet praise him the help of my countenance and my God. What is my countenance? My face. God's going to help my face to show. God's going to, give, God's going to put a smile on my face. And that seems trite, but it's real. God's going to cheer me up. <laughs> he says this. He says, he is my God. I don't know if you've read the book of Lamentations, but it is not the happiest book in the Bible. And the title might have given it away. Once again, to the blues we go. Lamentation is one of the most depressing books in the Bible because it's written out of a, a really tough spot. It's traditionally attributed to Jeremiah. He may or may not have been the author. 
But whoever wrote it, wrote it while Jerusalem was being destroyed. And Jerusalem was not being destroyed because God just wanted to have fun with them. Jerusalem was being destroyed because the people of Jerusalem rejected God. Jeremiah warned them over and over again. He said, guys, you can't keep going down this road. It's going to lead to destruction. And then he finally says, that's it. You can't avoid it. It's coming. Get ready because this isn't going to be fun. He walked around with a yoke on his neck, a kind of thing you'd put on oxen to keep them threshing together. He put it on his shoulders and he said, this is what it's going to be like when they come for us. At one point, he just ticked people off so much they threw them in a pit to die. Some foreigner had to come dig them out of the pit, pull them out of the pit. Whether Jeremiah or someone else wrote this, it's written from a deep place where they're identifying with the pain of Israel, of Judah. Identifying with the pain of losing their homeland and, and knowing that it was their fault. Sometimes that's the hardest thing is knowing it's your own fault. It's easier to accept something that wasn't your fault because you can just say, well, it's life, but when you know it was your fault, that's tough. I want you to turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Lamentation chapter 3. The whole book just rolls and rolls without much of a break. It's just <laughs> sadness after sadness. It doesn't get much better. Sometimes you just say, man, I can't read this book. I need to read something happy again. But right in the middle of it, right in the middle of it, there's, there's a glimmer of hope. There's a glimmer of light. In Lamentation chapter 3. He says this. and I want to start in verse 17. My soul has been rejected from peace. So I say, I, he says, my soul has been rejected from peace. I've forgotten happiness. You ever felt like that? You ever forgot, you felt like it's been so long since you felt happy? What, what does happy feel like? I forgot what it was like to be happy. It says in verse 18, so I say my strength has perished. Why? Why is my strength perished? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. A merry heart does good like a medicine, the Bible says, but a broken spirit tries the bones. He's experiencing this. He's identifying with the hopelessness that Israel and Judah have felt. He says, I say my strength has perished, and so is my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore I have hope. Hang on. He just said my hope is perished. But something changed it. In the midst of a whole book of despair, where did this hope come from? Two verses ago, he says hope is gone. Hope is dead. There's no such thing as hope anymore. But now he says this I will recall to mind. And therefore, I will have hope. Why do you have hope? Because I chose to recall something to my mind. This is the, the Hebrew word, literally means to bring something back. I have to go get it and bring it back to my mind. I don't, this is deliberate, guys. 
That's not like, well, I was, I was just sitting there crying, and then a thought popped in my head. God is good. <laughs> Bless your heart if it happens that way. But I want to tell you that it's not always going to happen that way. You're not just going to have these random moments of bliss. You have to choose to remember something. What am I going to focus on? Am I going to spend a year crying about this, or am I going to at some point say, what do I remember about God? He says, this I will recall to my mind. I will bring this to my mind. My mind is full of sadness and despair and, 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 and everything that's bringing me down, but I will choose to remember this. And when I choose to remember this, I will have hope. I have hope. Verse 22 says this. This is what he's choosing to remember. The Lord's loving kindness, loving kindnesses, plural, indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. Remember, they have given the finger to God. They have rebelled against the Lord. They have pushed him away. They have said, we don't need you. But here's what God says. My loving kindness toward you has not perished. I'm not done with you. You may have said you're done with me, but I'm not done with you. My loving, the Lord's loving kindness is, what is loving kindness? In the Bible, the word loving kindness is God's love in action towards you. It's his actions of love. So his loving kindness, we've, we had to create an English word that didn't exist. Because there was no word we had which properly conveyed the, the, that love in action, love in, a, in, a, in, a, in an act towards someone. So we call it, we create, there's a new word created for the Bible, and it is the word loving kindness. It is God's love in action towards you. And he says his loving kindnesses, plural, they never cease. In the midst of the most depressing book in the Bible, where does hope come from? I choose to recall this. I choose to bring it back to my memory. I choose what I'm going to remember, and here's what I'm going to remember. His loving kindness never cease. His compassions never fail. Why do we need his compassion? Because we have done nothing to earn his goodness, but we know he is a compassionate God that loves us. It says this, his compassions never fail. They don't fail even in, even in the midst of our great rebellion. His compassions don't fail us. They are new every morning. <laughs> I love that. They're new every morning. We are, not, we are not relying on the compassion he felt for Abraham. We're not relying on the compassion he felt for Jacob. We're, we're not relying on the compassion he felt for Moses or Joshua or even David. His, his mercies for us are new every morning. Yesterday and the day before yesterday and for years we've rejected God. But his mercy is not stale. It's new. Every morning there's new mercy for us. Friends, his mercy is more abundant than your trouble. His mercy is more abundant than your sin. His mercy is more abundant than your rebellion. You can't sin enough to sin more than he has mercy. You're not capable of it. And the devil is not capable of being so bad that he can be more bad than God is good. He's not capable of more hate than God has love. 
For he's not God's equal. He's only a created thing. His mercies are new every morning. Great. The word great is big, huge, massive. Is your faithfulness. You know when you're in those times where you are in a state of deep darkness, depression, lowness, and everything seems big except for the good things. All the worst things seem big. This debt I can't come out from under, big. This disease I still am dealing with, big. These people that I have broken relationship with, big. These feelings that I keep having, the struggles I keep struggling, big. And, and, and here's what happens when you choose to remember who God is. All of a sudden, all those things that seem big seem small in comparison to God. And you start to say, your faithfulness is massive. Your faithfulness is huge. Your faithfulness is gigantic. Great is your faithfulness. This I will remember. And this I will have hope. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. Thank God. I'll tell you one more story before we close. <clears throat> this is a tragic story, unfortunately. When David was in the um, wilderness, he had gone and he had um, sought shelter this is when he before he was king Saul chased him throughout the nation throughout the countryside Saul was afraid that David was a threat to his throne Saul was king at the time and David was anointed king but he wasn't king so he's running away from Saul he comes to these priests at a place called Nob and they recognize that he's got an anointing from God on his life they do three things for him. Number one, they give him the sword that he killed Goliath with, or that, sorry, he chopped Goliath's head off with, the sword of Goliath. David had taken Goliath's sword, chopped off his head. They gave him that sword back. They inquired of the Lord for him. They had something called an ephod, and, and they would inquire of the Lord and say, what does the Lord say? So they went and inquired of the Lord so David would have direction. Third, they gave him food. David had a man with him named Doeg the Edomite. And Doeg um, was not loyal and was not honest. Doeg later ditched him and went to Saul's side. And when Saul found out that David had gotten away again and uh, said, you know, why, do you got, why does nobody care about me? Saul started having a pity party. He said, why didn't anybody care? My own son makes a covenant with this guy. People keep giving him food. People let him give it away. You're a bunch of traitors. Nobody's loyal. And Doeg says, hey, I know something. I saw that priest, Abimelech. I saw him. He gave David food. And he went and inquired of the Lord. And he gave him Goliath's sword. I saw them do it. And Saul says, okay, well, they're all going to die. And Saul went to the place of Nob where these priests lived. And he went to his soldiers and he said, kill these priests. Priests were unarmed. They stood there. 
The head priest who had helped David said, we're on your side, we're not against you, but David is loyal to you. He's not a bad guy, you know. He served you well, why do you want him dead? Saul says, I want all of you dead. He tells his soldiers, kill these priests, kill these men of God. And the soldiers say, we can't, we're not doing that. We're not going to kill priests. And Doeg, the guy that ratted them out, said, I'll do it. Picked up a sword, and he went through them, started hacking them, killing them one by one. Eighty-five priests died at the hands of Doeg the Edomite. Word got back to David, and he wrote a psalm. It's a different psalm than we're about to read. He wrote a psalm where he vented his anger towards the Lord. Not, not towards the Lord, but he vented his anger towards Doeg to the Lord. And it's an amazing song of learning how to get past your own anger and give something to God. It's an amazing psalm. But I can't imagine what you'd feel because David says, I'm, it's my fault they're dead. Think about that. 85 unarmed priests were massacred. And David said, it was all my fault. I did this to them. I went to them for help. I got them in trouble. He said, I remember Doeg was there and I knew he was going to tell. He says, this is my fault. And he wrote a psalm in the wilderness in that season of his life. We don't know if he wrote it before this happened or after. But we know he wrote it when he was running into the wilderness right after this incident had happened where these priests had helped him and he was being chased out, warned that he couldn't stay. He says in Psalm 77, verse 1, My voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God and you will hear me. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. In, my, in the night my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I'm disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Selah, Selah is most likely a pause, a time where maybe the musicians would play, but just stop and pause and think about it. He says, you held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I considered the days of old, the years of long ago. Then he says this, I will remember my song in the night. What song do you remember in the darkest of your nights? What songs do you sing in your deepest place, your lowest place, your darkest moments, what do you sing? The world has songs for you. The world has songs that will make you feel way worse than you already feel. I have a friend who's actually a, a Christian hip-hop artist, but before that he was a first responder on the northern reserves in northern Manitoba. I told him about a, a time where somebody had been Somebody we know had attempted suicide and what they, the scene they founded when they found when they were there and the music that was playing. And he said, you'd be surprised, but almost every scene I go to, he said, music is playing. And it's music that makes whatever they're dealing with that much worse and drives them to a place of suicide. The world has a song for you, but it has no answers for you. God has a song for you. You have songs. And if you'll dare to sing them when you don't feel like singing them, 
they will lift you. David says, I'll remember my song. Oh, he had written many songs about God. I said, I'll remember that song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. He says, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be for favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Selah. Then I said, it is my grief. The right hand of the Most High has changed. It is my grief that the right hand of the Lord has changed. But we know the right hand of the Lord never changes. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. We know this. But this is how David feels. And then he says this. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I shall, I will remember. I choose to remember it. Can you imagine the scenes going through your head? You're picturing what happened to those men that helped you in your time of need and how they were killed. And all you can think is, all you can do is you're running that image to your head. The movie is playing over and over in your head. And then he chooses, no, 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 I'm not going to think about that. I've got to remember God. I'm going to remember what God's done. I'm going to remember what he's done for me. I'm going to remember the deeds of the Lord. Then he says this, I will remember your wonders of old. I'll remember stories that happened before I was born. I'll meditate on all your work. I'll muse on your deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God. Now he's talking about stuff that's bigger than himself. He's pulling himself out of the temporary pain and lowness by focusing on the eternal truths. He says, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. The water saw you, O God. The water saw you and they were in anguish. The deeps trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the the sea, your paths in the mighty waters. Your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. See, this isn't even his story, but he's hanging on to it. It's my story now. And you in the New Testament have something he didn't have. Remember what that first psalmist said that we read at the beginning. He said, I've been looking for the face of God. When will I see the face of God again? I have something to tell you. You can see the face of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God is found in the face of Christ and he has made God known to you and you've received the Holy Spirit which every day of your life cries out, I'm adopted, I'm a child of God. He will never leave me or forsake me. That spirit is a pledge. You have something they didn't have. You have the gospel. You have Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit. But even in, without, even in that earlier, I mean, it was still the spirit working here, but even then, he knew, I choose what I'm going to remember. And if I can remember this, because right now my memory is flooded with things that aren't helping me, but I can remember something bigger. And I want to tell you, you can remember something bigger. Let's do a work of discipleship for a moment. I want you to use your phone or your notepad or whatever you've got. We're going to close right now, but I want you to write these things down. I want you to write three things that you need to remember about God. In your low places, what will you remember about God? 
You might say his love. You might see his faithfulness. You might be way more specific or way more broad. I don't care. What are three things in your low spots that you need to remember about God? I want you to write it down somewhere so you can go back to it. Now, you don't have to stop at three. I'm just saying three so we can manage the time. I want to ask you, do you know any scriptures that speak on these three things? Where do you get, the idea, where do you get these ideas about God? Well, you say, well, I remember God's love. Well, where, how do you know God loves you? Well, they taught me when I was a kid that Jesus loves me and the Bible tells me so. Now, maybe you're new at the Bible and you go, I don't know what the verses are. That's good. Then you have homework for this week. You don't need to know them right now. This is not a quiz. It's not a pop quiz. Nobody's judging your answers. Nobody's going to check your notepad. But could you take that home and find out? Because I, I want to tell you something. If the only reason you believe things about God is because someone stood on a platform and told you, then you can believe wrong things about God too. Your reason for believing things about God should not be that I told you. Your reason for believing things about God should be because he said those things about himself. If I can tell you something, it's what the Bible says about God. And if the Bible says about God, that's, that's history, generations, that's centuries, millennia of truth that backs up who he is. That's him telling you who he is. So if you don't know the verses now, go find them. If you don't know how to find them, ask somebody. May it be a treasure hunt. And then, I want you to just think about three times in your life you've learned these things about God. How'd you learn that about God? Where did you learn that about God? Did you learn that through, maybe it was a, it was a moment of revelation um, in a Bible study or a church service or your own devotional time, or maybe it was in a wilderness experience. Maybe it was in a time of great trial that you learned that who God was. Maybe it was a time of great victory you learned who God was. I have a friend who was supposed to die. Parents had been told she was going to die. She was just a little girl. She'd come down with a, an emergency case and, and doctors said there's nothing we can do for her. She's, she's probably not going to be here long. Her mom went outside the room and said, I refuse to fear. She said those words out loud, I refuse to fear. Began to pray. Phoned the grandparents, phoned friends of the family, and they began to take communion and pray wherever they were, different places. Some grandparents were over there in Colorado, somewhere over here. And they began to pray for her. She was not responsive. She couldn't talk. She was on her way out of this earth. Then the light came back on. She looked up and said, hi, Mom. She was hungry. She was ready to eat. She was completely healed. And the doctors were shocked and amazed. Now, I could tell you my friend Lindsay believed that Jesus was her healer before that, but she learned Jesus was her healer in a new way then. So it's great if what you know is, you, because there's moments where, you know, I grew up in church and people told me, you know, Jesus is your Savior. But I know when that became real revelation to me. So treasure those moments. Maybe it was just a, maybe it was just sitting right there and all of a sudden something clicked on. Maybe it was just in your own time with the Lord. And man, it hit me like it never hit me before. However it happened, write that down. And I want you to be 
Create a discipline around this. I want you to pull these things out when you're low. I want you to choose what you're going to remember. I want you to choose what you're going to think about. I'm gonna, I want you to choose your song and sing those songs when you don't feel like singing them. I want you to determine that you are not controlled by outside forces, but the Spirit of God within you is able to take control. Excuse me. The greater is he that's within you than he that's within the world. Let's pray together.